0: So, there was a, um, uh, a sound, not Soundgarden, I'm sorry, there was a, uh, Sonic Youth song. Do you remember Sonic Youth? Are you, uh, is that a band that was ever within your... Uh... I'm
1: absolutely sure I've heard, uh, many songs by many bands, uh, but I just am oblivious to the details. I okay. just listen to the music.
0: So, there, there was this song, and I have no idea what the name of the song is, uh, thinking back. But the it was uh, a recording from an interview they did, I don't know, Czech Republic or something. And uh, the, the question was on the interview, uh, do you think you are under the influence of Jesus and Mary Chain? And the response is no. Okay. So um, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask a variation of that. And, uh, the, the question is what photographic movement or what photographer do you think that you are most influenced by in, uh, when you're out taking everyday shots or shots that aren't purposely made to mimic somebody else, what, uh, what type of of uh, movement do you think you're under when you're just out taking normal photographs?
1: I'm going to have to say that my sensibility comes from street photography. So all the greats in that area, you know, um, Cartier-Bresson and, uh, Winogrand especially. So the reason I say that I don't actually do very much street photography. I'm actually most of the time shooting landscapes and maybe some wildlife, Uh still lives, things I encounter in a fairly empty part of the world, and every now and again I go into a city and, and shoot in the street, but what I'm really talking about is a sensibility where I'm hunting for special moments and or unusual angles or, you know, unusual light or something that may be a pretty temporary or ephemeral phenomenon and I want to catch it just right, and I want to tell something of a story, or if not tell a story, uh, make somebody wish that they understood the story, you know, but just somehow, it's not that I necessarily want always to have a narrative in a photograph, but I want it to make people think of other things. I want it to work like a metaphor, uh, in some way and push it, push out beyond the sort of surface subject. And so that, that interest I guess maybe it's a kind of poetic photography that I really admire the most. And I feel like, uh, that it's something you have to kind of hunt for. Obviously you can pick places where you're more likely to find what you're looking for, but there is still a certain amount of uh, exploration I think involved.
0: Okay. So here's the other half of this question. Um, what, do you find drawn to when you're, you know, paging through Instagram or Flickr or um uh, when you're at a uh uh an art show a, a photography show what is it that really pulls your eye?
1: If I was going to sum it up, I would say atmosphere. Uh so where there, where there's a a strong feeling um, sort of an almost an emotional response to the way the photograph is presented. And that is often, uh, got quite a bit to do with the, not so much, it could be the subject, but it, it also often has a lot to do with the way the print was made, the way the photo was taken in, in terms of how it transmits light and shadow. And it's atmospheric. That's what I think grabs me first.
0: Okay. Um, now, yeah, you know, I was just looking up, uh, some of the Gary Winogrand stuff, uh, because you mentioned him. Uh, a couple of shows ago, uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, straps, cam- uh, camera straps. And um, so I'm looking through and it looks like he is, um, you know, is this uh, New York? I think it's New York. It, it really looks he had like a. He was
1: in New York for quite a while, but he also spent a fair amount of time in the American West and also in LA. So there were different Who's a teacher and he spent periods of time in different American cities.
0: Okay. So that's where I'm at. Um, so we're talking American cities, um, or European cities. What do you do if you're born in, you know, you're a suburb dweller? Um, what do you do, uh, for that type of thing? If you're, um, out of, uh, the inner city?
1: Yeah. It just means you have to, you have to, Maybe open up your def, broaden your definition. So sometimes I'll shoot people, you know, in, in rural or, or suburban areas. You can find them. They, there are places people go, especially occasions. Um, so even if you live in a small town, there is usually a county fair, which has a temporary feeling of a city with lots of people all in one place, kind of festive. Okay, sure. There there are these, there are these evanescent street-like or city-like phenomena that happen in rural places. You know, it could be a rodeo or a car show or, you know, whatever. Good point. Uh, Even even a flea market or, you know, uh, there's a lot of those kinds of events. But the other thing is you don't necessarily, I don't necessarily have to have people in a picture. Uh, even when I want to make something that is about people, you can photograph you know, the the structures they make and the spaces that they create and gardens and, you know, weird roadside stuff and all of those, uh, the detritus and tracks that people leave behind can be just as interesting and, you know, mysterious as the actual people. So there's that. And, and I'm not so much talking about the subject of street photography, more of the way of that feeling of going hunting and rolling the dice that that I think you get in that kind of photography. I like to carry that attitude into landscape photography rather than spend a ton of time preparing. uh, I I like to hunt.
0: Okay. So uh, one of the things that I noticed specifically uh, about his photographs as examples of uh, street photography, you know, uh, he's not holding the camera level. And if the camera is not level, he's not worried about it. Um, -hmm. he's looking at that moment within the, um, uh, within the world. Um, and, And uh, he was
1: super fast. So he always had the shutter at cranked up to one thousandth of a second and he had uh, pushed his film so that he, he wouldn't have motion blur as a, you know, he wanted to just be able to hammer that shutter button down and not worry about, you know, that extra few seconds where you try and stabilize. He didn't do that. He just fired. Sure. Frame and fire. Bam. One movement. Yeah.
0: Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, for me in this, uh, in the same type of thing, uh, I'm looking for, you know, the banal photographers, the new topographers, the, um, and what they do is very much catch the, uh, human landscape, um, without the human in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if there's, you know, humans, they're in cars or they're, be- they're behind glass or that type and of I, thing.
1: I, I personally find a lot of those photographers kind of fit within what I'm talking about. I think uh, there are people who are going, I, they strike me as people who are hunting for compositions that, you know, convey a feeling and, and some ideas and some meanings about the way the world is and the way people interact with the world. And they're just more taken with the physical stuff, the landscape, the architecture. Uh, right. And, the, and, yeah, and, and I mean, and I feel, I love that stuff, but I don't feel like stopping there and limiting myself. You
0: know yeah. I mean? Well, uh, my, my thing is that, you know, um, to me, um, yeah, um there's, there's a lot of reasons why I don't do, um uh street photography and I don't generally take pictures of people and that is because then those particular people become the the photograph um and I'm probably not really expressing this the way I want to um No
1: I actually know exactly what you mean people will always upstage whatever else is in the photograph because right. we're just wired that way. So if you put a person in the photo, the people looking at it are going to have a hard time seeing anything else you may want to convey. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, no, I think you have a very good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, so, so photographers like William Eggleston, who did do some, uh, photographing of people and he did a lot of stuff within, you know, urban dwellings. He he did a lot more suburban and rural. Um and uh and and his work I think is just absolutely uh fabulous. Absolutely um uh you know it it's compelling because it tells a point in time um that doesn't it isn't dependent upon um, the the actors uh, in that time, uh, and it, it it's it's almost uh, maybe I should what I should say it's it's almost between scenes, um, it's it's the set, it is um, the nothingness nothingness on which something happens, um, and I'm and I'm not gonna say it's it's nothing, you know, because it is definitely stuff. But the nothingness um, of uh in that it doesn't have humans in it, doesn't have um actors in it, and I don't mean actors as in performers, I mean uh actors as in protagonists, actors as sure. in people who do stuff. And and that to me is is about as fascinating um stuff as I possibly can. Can see and and one of the things about it is uh, that I like about it is that um, I can do it here. I can do it in my native environment without having to go to the other for something that's visually interesting. Now, if you're doing street photography or st- street photography, which is candid photography of humans, um, those humans change all the time, so. I can understand how there is a great advantage to that. Um, but there yeah, is,
1: there is, but then they will also, they won't, they will not cooperate either. So there's a great disadvantage.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, Right. I have a student doing a creative project with her dog. And I, I tried to dissuade her because dogs don't, dogs, dogs will listen to you until you have your camera. Like, my dog will look at me with her ears up, and as soon as I grab any, any camera-like device, her ears go back, and she looks completely cowed. Whereas before, she looks incredibly curious. You're going to
1: need to start tying a sausage to your camera. Yeah,
0: right, exactly. Or just around my neck. Um,
1: so so I'm going to just follow what you said, because I've just been focused on one of my favorite photographers I follow on Flickr, Warren Kirk and Warren Kirk is methodically chronicling landscape and uh homes and gardens and the people who use them and live in them i uh, just there's a steady stream of really fantastic photographs of these very oh, yeah, uh, yeah. R- kind of rich uh mostly older people in suburbs of melbourne but all all around that part of australia anyway he just came out with a third book which is uh, of his photographs, Suburbia, the Familiar and Forgotten by Warren Kirk. But why I'm bringing it up is because his photos do both what you're talking about and some sometimes, not all the time, not even half the time, he puts a person in who's obviously the person who lives in the place. And he, he yeah. steps back. He shows their environmental portraits. So the people are generally fairly small in the frame. And he really balances it so that and also the people generally are people who have a very strong uh design power in their homes and gardens, like their are places that have been really lived in for many, many decades, and they'll be old-fashioned, out-of-date, odd, interesting environments. And they're very they're very strong and expressive and then he puts makes the person relatively small in the frame so it balances. So the person doesn't upstage their environment. They're usually in perfect balance with it and they are the creator of it. And it's it's a very interesting kind of way to get both. And they're portraits because the people are always voluntarily, they're not candid, they're they're they've agreed to have their picture taken. So uh, I, yeah. I think that's a real, real interesting approach, but it does mean you have to like talk to people and, and not seem threatening to them and all of that. Right. And I've been working on something like that at this place. I spend a time every winter down in Tucson, Tucson estates. It's a big snowbird community and that's been going pretty well, but there are people who, you know, view me with suspicion and th- usually they're okay. Once they find out I have a place there and, you know, I'm a, a neighbor, but, it's still a little sticky. Like, why are you taking my picture? Not as bad apparently as the deep South or even the, just a little bit South from what I hear, uh, listening to the lensless podcast. Um, you know, one of the hosts lives in not that far South. I guess he's in Carolinas. Anyway, he he talks about people being suspicious. Corey talks about people being suspicious of a camera or why are you photographing me? And I, I kind of could see that anywhere in that Southern Appalachian chain. There's a long history of photographers taking pictures of people, you know, as like some sort of example, almost. I think they may have made people feel like, you know, the, the yeah, indigenous natives being invaded by anthropologists. Like there's definitely not right, a good history there. It, yeah. it,
0: it's, <clears throat> it's, um, you know, misery porn, uh, and poverty porn. Um, um, You know, you, you, you have to remember when you're out there taking those pictures of that house that's run down, you know, it's sometimes that's the best those people can do, uh, for whatever reason. I
1: tell you what though, I can tell from the photos of the people in the Melbourne suburbs that these people are perfectly happy with the way their homes are. They're not the most up-to-date modern fancy houses. Sometimes the paint's peeling, you know, but that's, They're Australians. They just don't seem to care, you know, (laughs) but I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's a tricky business. But I think if you want to do that kind of work, you, you just have to sincerely actually really care and be interested in the people you're dealing with. And you need to you need to talk them and talk to them and tell them what you're doing and show them what you're doing so that they don't feel like, you know, you're you're some alien coming in and judging them or whatever. And it's, it's tricky. And, and I've had, I've had people shut me down a few times, but most of the time people are happy to be photographed.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, and I, you know, um, I don't really, uh, I don't really have a problem with anybody who doesn't want to have their picture taken. Um, but I also am one of those people uh, who's not comfortable out there, um, chasing people down, um, um. For their pictures, so, so yeah.
1: Um, I, in fact, in fact, I'm gonna I'm just gonna break in and say the the most recent example of this happening to me because it's kind of funny. So I was in this huge snowbird community down in Arizona, and it's uh, you know it's built in the '60s, so all the places are old and quirky and odd and interesting. And so th- there was a house that had a Bernie bumper sticker in the window, which I liked. So I I kind of was taking a picture kind of close up with a medium wide angle lens so that the bumper sticker would be big in the frame and then, the, you know, the view down the street would go off into the distance. And I took the picture and I started walking and this man came out and yelled at me, really barked at me, you know, and I turned around and here's a guy with, you know, camo pants and kind of rough looking, you know, and mean and mad. And I'm like, okay, now what? You know, so I walked back and I asked him what he wanted. And he said, I saw you taking that picture of my friend's house there. And, you know, and I just want to know why you took that picture. And I said, well, you know, I really like the bumper sticker in the window and I take pictures as a hobby and it's for fun and, you know, yeah. and, he, and, and then he said, he said, well, my friend's an old woman and, and she's a Democrat. And I said, well, I'm a Democrat. And then he said, oh, well, I'm a Democrat too. <laughs> so the whole thing like he really looked like he could be you know a right wing nut and it turned out he was a left wing nut and we got along great in a 20-minute conversation
0: <laughs> you gotta you gotta love him where you find him right um yeah exactly right.
1: so but it was
0: funny okay <laughs> on that note let's uh, start the homemade camera podcast Over the last, um, I don't know, couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about shutters. And uh, part of the deal is, um, you know, when I'm looking at cameras on eBay, one of the things that I do is I look at the shutter dial. and Because I, I want to know what the fastest shutter speed is, and I want to know what the slowest shutter speed is. And I think about like sp- specifically like Russian cameras. Um, they'll have you know say one five hundredth as the top, and then they'll go to two fiftieth and one twenty five, and then uh they'll end up at one eighth. Like there won't be anything slower than one eighth. And I'm thinking, well, you could you know you do one eighth, one quarter, one you know, and um the thing about it is I, I i i i feel like i'm judging that uh camera based on really unrealistic situations in which i'm going to use the camera like i uh, you know i i will occasionally shoot at slow shutter speeds um you know on a tripod well you know okay almost never I think on a tripod of, I th- I'm I think more, it really sometimes bracing, but go on. So
1: I think it depends on the format. If you're using a big format and with an, a large format lens, or even the old-fashioned medium format lenses that are extremely slow and have not very much depth of field, then you're going to be stopping way down. And some of those lenses they go down to f 32 or even smaller. So right, you you know with. Those kinds of situations, you might end up really needing those funny half, you know, one second, half second, quarter second, but that's very specific. If you're talking about a 35 millimeter camera, you know, forget it. You're going to be always using shutter speed above an eighth or higher, right? (laughs) usually, you know, a 30th or higher and... You're never going to use anything except bulb. You know, it's either pitch dark and you're on bulb or right. you're using a reasonable shutter speed. Yeah. Right. And actually there were quite a few SLRs made that just stopped at a 30th, um, or a 25th. Like they had just nothing slower than that. Maybe bulb, but you know, that's it. Right. And, and I don't have, a, I don't have a problem with those at all. Uh, one of the reasons they did that was because the old shutters usually had a separate mechanism for the fast speeds and then a different mechanism for the ones below a 30th or a 25th. Right. And Often they were on a make make different a, dial. And the uh, way to make a cheaper model would just be to drop that whole clockwork out, and it, it saved money, and uh, you could sell the camera for less.
0: Right, right. Um, and I understand that. And uh, I understand that that's the reason why we see it on those old Soviet lenses quite a bit, was uh, the economics. And those are also the first shutter speeds to really go um you know it's the slow shutter speeds uh you'll constantly see um listings for um not reliable on shutter speeds below one quarter it's like yeah well okay (laughs) right
1: and but those are the ones that usually respond really well to a a little clean and lube because generally that's just the extra friction and so the gunk is it amplifies the gunk you know (laughs) right so yeah
0: so the other half of this question is what is a reasonable number of shutter speeds to have? Um, you know, I think of, uh, like I had uh, a little half frame uh, Olympus Pen EE2, I think it was. And it was supposed to have one fortieth of a second and like 1 130th of a second. Those were like the two... Shutter speeds it came with. And then it would do all the rest with that, uh, with the aperture. Um, so, you know, one, one hundred, you know, okay, anything around a hundred will freeze most activity to a certain extent. I mean, if it's really frantic, you know, certainly it won't. Uh, but then you get, you know, I mean, th- these were specifically trip cameras these were specifically tourist cameras so it's not i mean these aren't for sports photographers these aren't for people who are trying to take pictures of droplets of water right um so so you know is that enough with the control of the aperture or what is it that we really kind of need for a range of shutter speeds if we're if we're going to start building shutters which I, I believe is probably our next thing to really tackle, assuming, yeah. assuming right now. Okay. So I'll talk about it a little bit later when I do the progress on the Flexopan, but the Flexopan body I left to print when I left on Thursday and it was doing fine when I left. So, um, so let's hope that it, uh, it finished out fine, but, um, it uh but my 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 point on that is um uh i if if i can do the shutter advance properly then the next thing for me to tackle is is uh, or excuse me not the shutter advance the film advance but if uh so the next thing for me to tackle is the um it is a shutter so mm-hmm. what do I, what's reasonable for me to do and um, what is reasonable? As um, you know, what's what's my reasonable reliability? Uh, so are, are like you
1: that. are you are you asking, or are you going to answer your own question?
0: No, I'm I'm asking I'm asking you. I'm opening the discussion. I don't really. Yeah. I haven't. Uh, I haven't specified. So, but well, anyway.
1: I've been, I've I've come to the conclusion that I only actually need two shutter speeds. I need one that will that will stop motion blur uh, or maybe like you say, reasonable act, you know, activity in the, in the subject. And the other, I, I want bulk I want the ability to do long exposures in case I want to use some very slow film or shoot at night or something. So that's my minimum. And, and as an example, uh, one of my favorite cameras to use is uh, a B2 Speedex. It's made by Ansco and Agfa in the middle of world war two, actually in Binghamton, New York. And this camera, it has a, a, the shutter speed, uh, I can't even remember what the official ones are, but I measured them and I know for a fact yeah. that the fast, the fastest speed it has is exactly one two hundredth of a second. And the next speed down is only a fiftieth of a second. This thing has an 85 millimeter lens. So when I hand hold this camera, which is how I always use it, I just put it on a 200th and that's right. it. That's what I'm shooting at and I don't ever have to worry about motion blur. It's nice and fast. Uh it stops most you know reasonable action. I just leave it so there's the one shutter speed camera and it does have bulb and it does have some other speeds uh but since I'm not using that particular camera on a tripod ever um then it's for all intents and purposes, you know, a one speed shutter and I don't have any trouble with it. It it being an old folding camera it has a nice wide range of, of uh, F-stops. I think it's, you know, from four point something all the way to F-22 or even maybe, yeah, I think, you know, so it's enough range that as long as you pick a film speed that's more or less reasonable for what you're doing, uh, that's all you need. And um, it, it kind of convinced me that that's all I need.
0: Okay, so um, here's another way of, of looking at it. Um, when I shoot um a camera with without a light meter so i'm doing sunny 16 um i it seems like almost the whole time i will be shooting at the the box speed of the film so um and then i'll make adjustments based on the sunny 16 light that's out Um, so if it starts to get cloudy, you know, I'll drop to 11, drop to eight, drop to four. Um, then, uh, when I, um, yeah, so I, I just generally leave that shutter, um, at the box speed, you know, 100, um, you know, one, one 25th or one 500th. And... well i
1: actually i actually really like what you're suggesting yeah. and a lot of old a lot of old cameras actually have shutter speeds that match a common iso like fifty one hundred two hundred right <laughs> and four hundred are often the the actual you know the older shutters before they rationalize the steps into the modern system right but i'm now i'm imagining a camera that really literally it just had the thing that set the iso also sets the shutter. And it's the sunny 16 camera. And it's just 50, 100, 160, 200, 400,
0: 800, 1600, you know? Yeah, no, you you have to have a 320 (laughs) in there for, uh, for 3200, yeah. yeah, Right. Uh, there's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and, yeah, okay. And, and to me, to me, the, the f-stop scale is ridiculous anyway because it doesn't follow, it follows its system, but then it makes convenient fudges on its system. Uh, yes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we go to 64 and then we go to one, one twenty-fifth, and then we go to 250th. Well, if we, if we fudge those three points off of 128, which is what 64 is doubled, then, um, any, any correction, anything after that has, an uh, more error. It's a divergent error, right? Um, sure, right, right. So, I mean, you know, um, uh, anyway, I that's, don't know. Uh, it, I like
1: the, I like a 200th because it's yeah. easy to do the, easy to do the sunny 16 math. You know, it's, it falls right. right there. I, I shoot a lot of Porsche 160. I just would ignore that, but I'd shoot it at well, 200th. But.
0: Yeah, and why not but, but, or you could shoot you it know, at 100.
1: 100, 400, those are yeah. common ones that I use and, yeah. and it's just up one, up down or You know, it I like the one 200. I like this camera that what it presented me with turns out to work really well for right. me. So, I've been thinking if I can just make a simple self-cocking shutter that trips at around a 200th of a second um and then a way to hold it open to create bulb then that that would be all I would need yeah. to to make to make a pretty fun camera to try different lenses on and you know i think that would be good and if you want to uh, if you're setting up on a tripod you know that could be any camera basically it doesn't matter so much what camera you're using if you're going to all the trouble of setting it up on a tripod and doing long exposures what we're really you and i are mostly trying to design are these hand cameras which we take out in this kind of exploratory way to to shoot what we find and those cameras are mostly handheld, so yeah, you don't need that many shutter speeds. Now, it's nice to have them. I mean, I like using a fancy camera that has all the shutter speeds all the way up to four thousandth of a second or whatever, but I don't find it very limiting to stick to just the one two hundredth. A lot of times the way it forces me to shoot turns out to be as interesting or even more interesting than If I pick the ideal shutter speed from the, you know, fancy camera.
0: Right. Right. And, you know, uh, and I think about all those, um, uh, cameras that, well, okay. So a modern, um, DSLR or even point and shoot, um, because it's all electronic controlled, you know, will do one 720th of a second at F, uh, 14, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, so yeah, the uh, the stepless
1: electronic shutters, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and those things are nice, but um but I you know, I mean I'm not going to be be able to be making those. Um so uh so yeah, so that may even allow for the rubber band actuated um mm-hmm. uh um uh, uh shutter so, or even I think or even gravity I think
1: your, your camera was at least that fast. I think mine is up there too. I'm pretty sure mine was around a 200.
0: Mine was, uh, mine was one two fiftieth because, uh, I remember that because, um, I'm pretty sure it said in the manual that the shutter speed was between one 200th and one 300th. And I think it was spot on right in the middle. So oh, mine, uh,
1: mine was exactly a 200. So yeah, that's a real, and that's a, there, there there's another camera that just has a one speed shutter. Right. And actually I should just somehow, I should just take advantage of that. I should put a bayonet mount on that camera.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there, well, I mean, we still have that, you know, non-flat, uh, plane that is, uh, is of issue with, uh, you know, with a lens that'll put a flat, um, well, we'll you see. Know, flat image, yeah. Well, okay, yeah. Good for you. Yes, revise, re- re- revive the camera. Uh,
1: <laughs> oh no, I've been planning to do it anyway, but I, but I think the most fun would be if yeah, maybe it, uh, an interchangeable mount would be
0: a good idea. Right. Um, okay. So, oh, go ahead.
1: Uh, so you, I don't know, the one shutter speed and bulb. Idea is workable and it's fun, um, but are you are you feeling like you'd like a couple more options, or does that sound good? You
0: know, yeah, okay. So, um, wh- what I was looking at is, um, you know, when you said one shutter speed, I said okay, one eight thousandth of a second. I'll, <laughs> I'll take that shutter speed, um, <laughs> but that is such a complicated um, number for uh for a home device because you know you have to have chasing curtains or or well you could have a slit you could have
1: a you could have a high speed moving object with a very very narrow slit in it Um, yeah so i don't i don't know how skinny it would have to be but that would be how you would approach that i mean i bet you could get easily get a thousandth with some sort of homemade deal if you just use a very thin slit Instead of chasing curtains, no adjustment, just a, you know, a fixed slot.
0: Right, right. Um, uh, and w- although, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a possibility. Um, but, it, okay, so I, I was thinking that, um, maybe like 1 400th or 1 500th and then 1 uh, one one hundredth somewhere in that range, and then one thirtieth somewhere in that range. And and part of the deal of why I am going that far has to do with the idea of um of really making um a, a camera usable in dim light. Um,
1: and sometimes you want a just a little bit of motion blur, you know. You, sometimes that like borderline shutter speed gives you a nicer image
0: right yeah yeah absolutely um so um yeah i'm not saying that you you wouldn't want it i'm saying that maybe you don't always want it so Mm -hmm. um you know that's why i'm I'm supporting
1: your 130th of a second yeah basically i'm supporting the 130th of a second that's a useful addition both both for low light and because you're not going to get enough maybe not enough you know softness if Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that's what's great about the pinhole cameras is the really long exposures. And, uh, it, yeah, it's nice to be able to get that. Maybe a 15th would be a good low end. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. And,
0: and to me, that's one of the things about, um, pinhole photography. Um, I'm, I am not, uh, I, I went for a while chasing those perfect, um, round pinholes. And, um, uh, and I'm not sure I really want a perfect round pinhole anymore because, <laughs> well, because if I, I, you know, I can use a lens to collimate the light. Um, I don't necessarily need that perfect round pinhole. Um, mm-hmm. the pinhole to me. Is about the other, the, the the grunge, you know, and all that type of stuff. So sometimes,
1: though, sometimes, though, that's actually really great. There's a, a p- picture I just saw very recently. You probably saw it, too, on the Lensless Podcast Instagram stream. A guy put a Reality So Subtle, I think it was a 6 by 17 panorama camera on the dashboard of his car and then drove on a short trip with the lens open the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and it's just spectacularly sharp on his seat cushion upholstery and the interior of the car it makes his car look beautiful and then he's got some motion blur surprisingly little considering he was he must have been driving in a straight line <laughs> you know sure because yeah but it, but it's a wonderful contrast between the the bit of motion blur in the human and the crisp interior of the car and that has to be you know, it was pulled off because that is a very, very accurate pinhole. Otherwise it it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't be so sharp. It's, it's a great right. photo.
0: Right. And and that sharpness is, um, is something that it's nice, that is nice. Um, uh, but I don't think it, I, I, I just don't think it is, um,
1: You don't require it.
0: For me, no, absolutely. Because what I require is, um, the otherness of, um, the, uh, the otherness of, um, uh, of, of the image that you get with a pinhole. Um, I, I, I want, uh, and in fact, I've gone to, well, we can, we can discuss this, I guess. Um, but I've gone to the point where I, I don't necessarily want to use absolutely perfect film. Um, you know, if I have some old, beat up burnt film, that's where, that's what I want to use in the pinhole because I want to get further and further down that fidelity curve. Um, and, um, and yeah, and, and, and head out that, you know, that direction. But, um, but anyway, that's the, um, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's the direction on that. So,
1: So what I like about your suggestion is that you're really talking about three different shutter speeds, um a slow, medium, fast. And it seems to me that homemade shutters, if nothing else, you could basically make up three layers of shutters, in one set for each speed, you know? In terms of designing something uh that would give you that result, one way to do it would be three really simple self-cocking shutters that each one gave a different speed. Or another way to do it would be a c- constant speed shutter with an adjustable opening. So when it's wide open, you have a 15th of a second. You know, when it's halfway closed, you get your 100th. And when it's just a thin slit, you get your 400th or whatever your, you sure. know, your 3R. So those are two pretty simple ways to keep that mechanism design from getting too complicated and get that end result. And I, I like your four-speed shutter. I'm perfectly happy to adapt that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we could go with that. So how do we make them? What, what is, um, what, what's our, um, what's our, yeah. Okay. So what's our material? Let's start with that because how much of the, uh, um, how, uh, or what material we use, uh, determines how we make them or well, or, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to
1: suggest, it. I'm going to suggest mixing materials. I think it's going to want some sheet metal in it. Um, it's going to want some, uh, I like metal curtains because they're durable. You can push them and pull them and they're, but they're thin and they, and they don't have a lot of friction. So that makes sense to me, whatever, whether it's a rotating shutter or a skilletine or going from left to rights, you know, type of thing. Uh, imagine a metal curtain with a or three curtains, each one with a different size opening for your three speeds. And um, one would be a full size opening, which would also give you your bulb setting. Um, and so those three things, but they could be sliding within a plastic or wood or, you know, some other material could form the, the casing for it, um, uh-huh. uh, which might make it lighter or easier to fabricate or whatever.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well it could be all I, metal too. You know? I, I, I've come to the conclusion that I you know I'm gonna be using sheet brass um just simply because you can get it very thin. Um mm-hmm. and the thinner it is, I think that the more consistent your speed is going to be. Because there's less, you know, like if you use something like a rubber band, um there's gonna be less um um uh, stretching the, uh, uh, you know, uh, fatigue. Yeah. I in think the I would
1: look at, I would also look at aluminum. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go as thin as you can go because durability might be an issue. Um, it d- might get yeah. distorted. Yeah. So, you know, thick enough that it'll have enough memory to keep its shape when you horse around with it.
0: Um, right, right.
1: Exactly. And, but yeah, your idea, before, your yeah. idea of low is low mass so that the thing will accelerate and decelerate, you know, without too much trouble. Um, you don't want it like a really heavy shutter that's going to make a terrible crash when it gets to the end of its run or whatever.
0: Oh, sure yeah. we do. We want to wake everybody up and we want to know that we're taking their pictures, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, well, the sound, the sound is, that's
1: a refinement. We get to that, in, yeah. you know, part, the third iteration or whatever.
0: Now, um Ethan. I think it should
1: sound like a rubber band, actually.
0: Yeah. Uh Yeah, a little snapping of the rubber band. Snap. Um, Ethan over at camera while he was, um, while, while his Kickstarter was going on, um, was playing around with some various ideas. And I think he was, um, uh, you know, kind of experimenting with, with what he could do with some of the 3d printers and, uh, and you know, the, um, uh, and now he's doing the, the butter grip stuff, which is, which is wonderful. Um, but, um, he for a while, or he a couple of times showed some different shutters that were, that he had working. One of them was, uh, a curtain shutter that was on a spindle. Um, and another one was, um, a leaf shutter, a four bladed leaf shutter. Um, and those were, uh, or at least the leaf shutter I know was, uh printed uh was 3d printed but um and, and that's what I that's the material um you know that's the stuff I've been working with lately i'm just not convinced that that is going to be durable um and a precision enough material precision enough mm-hmm. you know sure. yeah um so I, I just have I, to kind of think. That I know, through.
1: I know precisely what you mean. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think though that, yeah, I think that metal makes sense. I think a lot of times though, you do want dissimilar materials so, like so that they don't react to each other too much. And sometimes, especially with corrosion, you also have to think about that for long life. Don't want to mix up different types of metals anywhere that you are, you know, prone to any kind of corrosion. So that's another thing to consider. Okay, so you're talking about rubber band. Are you talking about uh, something that is going straight across the frame or is it more of a a swiveling or rotary motion?
0: Well, I hadn't really thought about that. I was just thinking about that as a material and what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of that as a material. Um, So I hadn't really thought about the path Um, and, um, you know, I, I, that's all something that can come in the future, but, um, uh, I was just thinking about, okay, uh, well, on the panel, uh, on the panel, yes, the, uh, FlexoPan, um, I am, uh, working with a rubber band element, um, that's part of the film advance and it, it, and it just holds, The, uh, the part that stops the advancement, uh, you know, the, the little arm that retards the, the, the film advance drum from, from advancing all the way. Um, so, uh, so that is, um, you know, uh, so I'm, I plan on using that element, um, at least on this, uh, and so we'll see. So you want
1: that to cock the shutter? So that's a horizontal movement near well, the top of the camera.
0: Yeah. Well, not on the not on the flexopan because it's uh, on the flexopan. It is uh, a different um, thing. It's it's part of the advancement system. Um, but so on, is it
1: that like a sort more like a dial that you turn?
0: Yeah. This is the this is part of that dial. Um, right. I so, need, so I need some part tension. That, uh, uh, yeah. So the Oh, the ahead. part
1: that's gonna, the part that's gonna tension the shutter, is that a little arm that comes off in the horizontal plane up near the top right. of the camera? Is that? Yes. Right. Yes, so you have to translate that horizontal movement into, uh, movement in a, in a different plane at 90 degrees to that, uh, the plane of the lens. So that's like that seems to me to suggest that, I mean, the easy way to do that is to have a cocking lever that moves in the same plane as the shutter. And that that little horizontal movement up top would be the firing of it, of it. Uh, or some sort of, you know, I mean, it's hard to see how to translate that little movement into a proper, you know, cocking of the shutter. The other way to go, though, is a self-cocking shutter where the plunger that fires it also cocks it. So, and I like that. And the old box cameras used that system. And it was just one less thing to do, one less piece of equipment to build and design and operate. And there's something really appealing about that. And you could shoot fast too, if you could advance the film quick enough, because you you know, every time you push the button, it, it cocks and fires. And they used to use that on, they used to use that on some pretty um, advanced clockwork shutters, some that had many different speeds. Uh, that was a, there used to be a, a number of of, i'm pretty sure my ilex number three is a self-cocking shutter and that has a full range of speeds from bulb all the way up to i don't know 200th or whatever the top speed on that shutter is i'm pretty pretty sure that one is self-cocking i have to check Yeah, the rotary shutters keep appealing to me the most, and there's a really nice animation of one that it looks, you know, those those old contraptions that were basically like a bird on a teeter totter, and it would dip its beak into a glass of water. Oh yeah, yeah, and then, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's that same motion. It's this nodding thing yeah. which uses a, a linkage to turn a uh, an opening past a shutter. You know, synchronize so that the head of the bird covers the shutter right. when it's recocking. And oh. it's just so <laughs> yeah. simple. Okay. It's yeah, such yeah, yeah. an elegant thing. Right. And that's yeah. a self-cocking shutter. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about.
0: So we, we have, um, some sources for, um, some shutter designs. And I'm, uh, I'm going to send everybody to a website. Um, and I'll put this in the, sh- in the show notes, but it's, uh, http:// Amos Dudley, A M O S D U D L E Y dot com slash weblog or weblog, weblog slash s l o hyphen camera. And um, this is a 30- I, don't know
1: if, I don't know if it matters, but the s l o are in caps. Yeah. And so is the cam- and so camera. And then you get this great page that that says squinting, looking, doing.
0: Yeah and um the and it's it's a 3d camera that he designed for sla printing um and uh and sla printing is is different from the 3d printing that i do this is the the powder based stuff um that uh well it, a little it's more a refined, different system i guess yeah much right. more refined And he's, and he's got some lens design up at the top, but then he's got a couple of animations and videos of, um, of, it's not a self cock. Well, I guess it is. a.
1: Oh, there's a really nice one.
0: Yeah, it's not, Uh. it's not a, um, self cocking, but it's two buttons. So it sends it one way, then it sends it the other way.
1: Um, Is this, this by any chance, the one that that has essentially, like, two uh, V-shaped formations that make a hole that it's square when it's wide open, but it's never all the way, really all the way open? It's very interesting.
0: Yeah. And then uh, uh, what I was going to say is, and then a little bit further down, he um, has a set of eight animations for different shutter Different, just, uh, two-state shutter animation, two-state shutters. So where it would right. be, it would go one and then it would go the other. And then he has a, an image of an antique version of that, um, mm-hmm. from, uh, uh, from, from, uh, an old camera where it has, uh, a couple of different states and these states rotate in and out, um, to, um both cover and reveal the whole uh frame. And they're uh they're very interesting. So
1: well well what's really elegant about the ones that I'm looking at is that they work both in a clockwise and in a counterclockwise direction. And so that's essentially how instead of cocking, it simply works as a shutter traveling both forward and backward. It always opens and then closes no matter which direction you go. And whatever, you know, whatever type of switch that is, it's very elegant. And then I notice a little note at the bottom under the animation where he shows his shutter working and it says, quote, there is no adjustment for shutter speed except for the speed the button is pressed by your finger. I I really like the sound (laughs) of that. It's like (laughs) you would have to calibrate yourself, but eventually that could be really great. You would create essentially a manually operated, all mechanical, stepless shutter
0: (laughs) right exactly well yeah certainly and i think that's that's within range of something that you could do as a as a photographer uh if if you go back to the old um uh wine hand cranked movie film uh cameras from the from the silent era um, the speed was determined by the camera operator. So if uh, if he sped up, it was it, it had a little bit of a slower motion when projected, or if he slowed down, it had a faster motion when it was projected.
1: Um, Plus, he could conserve film by slowing down. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if absolutely. you're getting near the end of the reel.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so there was you know there was certainly um, you know this is this is something that they knew innately after you know years of doing it. And there's no reason why you couldn't practice with this.
1: As you slow down, the action would speed up. So it's counterintuitive. It would yes. take some getting used to. Yes.
0: yes. Um, well, uh, on on one of these shutters, because we're not talking about frames per second, it would just be, you know, the faster you press, the, the faster the shutter moves. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily be that. But... Um, but yeah, uh, these are these and are you, some elegant solutions.
1: And you could have two or three buttons, each one uh, a different speed. That would be another oh, sure. way, you know, so that you could basically calibrate it um, that way. Uh, there's there's a lot there's a lot of ways to set it up. But I like this, and I think just what we talked about earlier, slow versus fast, would be good enough. So if you designed the shutter that when you pressed briskly, that would be your top speed, and then you just press sluggishly to make a you know a little sure. a little blur happen yeah sure that sounds good enough for me
0: you know and one of the things that um is a hallmark of the really early film days is um you know there was a, a flicker there was a, a, an adjustment in the exposure um uh you wouldn't have an even exposure frame to frame so that they would you know be bright and one frame would be brighter and one frame would be darker and and that type of thing so um you know you would get some overexposure and some underexposure on these types of things so sounds like
1: they were having a little trouble synchronizing the shutter with yeah with the speed with the speed of travel or whatever yeah or
0: it was a sticky shutter or or something yeah those lines you know but um but anyway i think that this this website it you know it it's stuck in my brain pretty, pretty thoroughly. Um, so, so anyway, that's, um, uh, definitely worth looking at. And, um, and, uh, and then he also has this rotary shutter that works really well, um, or, or works really well in a 3d animation. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we've got a lot of, um, a lot of different opportunities to make this successful. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we can also go back to those scammers and really look at those, the actuation of those shutters, because those, you know, are, are designed for pretty, pretty good consistency. Um, but they are, uh, very simple to build. Uh, you need a spring, you need a disc, um, and you need, uh, uh, a method of, um, of actuation. Um, yeah. And and, those ones seem, they,
1: they strike me as more foolproof because they, they do seem to put out a constant shutter speed. It's predictable. Uh, so, you know, the, that makes judging your exposure that, that much easier. It does, it does look like a good idea to me. Um. And like I said before, you could make a camera design where you had two or three of those uh, and you could fire, you know, whichever one was the the right speed for what you were sure. choosing to do. Yeah.
0: Sure. Stacked shutters. Uh, yeah, I
1: don't see why not. And if they all had a bulb setting, you would just go BB one one hundredth or, right. or B one two hundredth B or, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you could really... So challenge. they would, in other words... Well yeah and I, I guess
1: the, a nice simple way to do it these ones that work in both directions would work in that if you change the design so that in one direction it was all it was always open and in the other direction it acted as a shutter so essentially if you know the secondary arms were were openings then you would be able to set You would have to cock the shutter, but if you're using any camera that has a a dark slide, that's simple. You know, you you take your picture, put the dark slide back, and then you pick which shutter you're going to cock, and you set the others to open and ready to go. So that takes a little time, but it would give you all those options. And I tell you what, uh, right now my ambition is not to try and design a shutter that can compete with my ready-made cameras. My only ambition is to design a shutter that will fit in a lens board, that I will enable me to try out various lenses that aren't meant to be used with medium and large format roll film backs. And so I'm talking about a, you know, a pretty primitive camera anyway, something with bellows or, or uh, simple focusing. And I just want a way to introduce a shutter into the system that will let me use oddball lenses that don't come with shutters. That's it. And I don't really particularly care if at this stage, if it's, uh, a robust shutter that will, you know, you could wave around and in, uh, you know, in use as, as a handheld camera in rough and tumble circumstances. I'm not even looking for that. Just something to let me try various lenses out.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, uh, but I'm also, uh, you know, the big thing that I want to be able to do is use some lenses that, Um, are shorter than, um, I guess shorter than about 40 millimeters. Um, because anything shorter than that rarely had, uh, a shutter built in. So for that Mm -hmm. grouping, that's, that's kind of the, the, um, uh, the, the, range that i want to be able to control with a shutter
1: no and actually it gets there are there are also a lot of wonderful medium format lenses that were designed for slrs and some of them are the more affordable really high quality lenses right and and yeah there's no way to use them the only trouble with no mostly those ones are not a problem the other thing is i want us to play with single lens reflex lenses on larger uh film and the again there you know there aren't there are very few medium format cameras with a built-in shutter that would work um so and there i don't happen to have any of them so (laughs) there's that too right i well i'm thinking about you know speed graphic all those graphic will do a lot but yeah yeah Mm
0: -hmm. well there are all those soviet lenses you know 35 millimeter 28 millimeter there are a couple of 20 millimeter uh right. lenses that are out there. There's some fish eyes. Um and I would I, I would love to be able to utilize those in uh one of these made camera bodies because they're right. generally small. They're gonna have a short focal length. Um short flange focal distance. They're gonna have a short focal length. All of those things um uh are good within uh within what I'm thinking about.
1: Yeah and and there's also some that have pretty large image circles that are, you know, say, uh, tilt shift for tilt shift lens and that kind of thing. So there, right. there are quite a few interesting possibilities. And some of them are even still being made. Uh, some of those Russian lenses are still in production. Um, I've just been finding and they're starting, I guess their business has been increasing lately and they're starting to really, uh, put, put them out there. Oh, really? Okay. I just saw, I just saw, for instance, an extremely wide angle lens for at least six four five format and it was some Russian Russian made you know brand new uh, Uh and not very not terribly expensive so yeah no I think it was for six by six actually I think it was it's an old Kiev lens that they're still making but you know you know in a modern presentation but yeah
0: okay um you tell you wanted to talk a little bit about location of the shutter in front of the film uh, yes
1: so there are i mean there are several places you can put a shutter right right in front of the film that that has to be the biggest opening it has to reveal the entire piece of film so those are typically uh you know roller shutter uh, window curtain shutters basically uh-huh. um, although so- sometimes they made giant couple square shutters but um and there, there is advantages to putting the the shutter way back there uh but then occasionally you see a shutter right behind the lens. That's not as common because then it's going to be in the way if you need an unusually deep lens design. Right. Uh, Putting Leaf shutters are typically put in between the front and rear elements of a lens. But it occurred to me that one possible solution would be to make a shutter that goes in front of a lens. Because, you know, if you don't have anywhere to fit it into a camera design, you want to make, say, a very short focal length lens and everything's you know, you just don't have a place to put it or it's not practical. Uh, or if you are sticking a lens on a camera that shutter is just broken, you know, what are you going to do? Well, right. if you could screw it, screw it onto the filter threads of a lens, that would be another place to put a shutter. And I'm sure there's some good reason why people don't do that. Like maybe it's out there where it gets bugs stuck in it or whatever, but <laughs> it's an idea. It's something to consider.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, and uh part of the deal with that is uh you would have visual confirmation on its operation uh, because i i'm thinking of the ca- the cameras and the shutters that we're going to build at least early on reliability is going to be a big factor uh so if it's mm-hmm. out there where we can see it you know you yeah. can kind of poke right. your head around and did that fire? Right, get, the, you know, uh, get the oil
1: oil can out or or maybe you trim <laughs> a cigar with it, or you know, there'd
0: be all kinds of good things. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, okay, so we um and we've talked a little bit about where to go get um shutters. Um the uh uh old cameras with shutters in the body um i i think that they could be used but i think you have to be practiced in uh, in order to extract them uh yeah so
1: i'm i want to start building up a collection of really thrashed useless worthless cameras that i can dissect to see how they come apart because i feel like somewhere out there there's some old box of a camera that has a working shutter that you can dissect out of it but i don't want to like experiment on good cameras so I'm going to keep my eye out for more, you know, broken ones that maybe I just have an idea that maybe there's one where it wouldn't be that hard to pull the shutter mechanism out and reinstall it into something else. I think it's worth looking for. Uh, And then sometimes you might even be able to use a camera that had nothing else going for it, except the shutter and and build off of it, you know? Um, So that's another thing to consider. I've seen, I've seen people put you know, an oversized back on a uh, large format camera. So why couldn't you do that with a smaller camera, for instance? Uh, it just seems possible that there'd be a way to adapt some ready-made shutters. Uh, that's something I'd like to look into.
0: And, uh, I, you know, it, it, it really does remind me a little bit of, um, you know, the physician training. Um, you know, they, they did go... Th- Steal cadavers, um, because, uh, it was much safer than cutting on live people. It's the same yeah. thing with, with, uh, with cameras. Um, you know, there's no reason why a dead camera can't give its life up to science or give its last days or give it, well, I mean, after its last days, right?
1: I have a, I have a friend who went to school to study podiatry and one day he opened a door and looked in to a room full of just feet in a big pile.
0: Yeah, there we they go. trade. They
1: tra- they they trade to other med schools. Like they trade the oh, feet for something else. And my grandfather, who studied to be a dentist in Lower Manhattan, at, in a hundred and some years ago, they used to wave body parts out the windows to to like thrill and frighten that the you know secretaries in the office opposite. <laughs> Those are the days.
0: Um, uh, I just saw something that was was kind of interesting, and this would be something that would be good, maybe as a source. Okay, so I made a camera that uh, a lamography kit camera called Constructor Constructor with a K. Um, well, M from Emulsive just posted something on Instagram today about the last camera and the last camera apparently was a power shovel uh product uh and it's a DIY 35 mm camera uh very much like the constructor except it's a viewfinder camera as opposed to the constructor which is a, a an SLR um and so it would be worth looking at um it would be worth looking at uh making one of those Um, you know, uh, and, and really observing what, um, what kind of shutter systems they have. Um, so that would be, um, uh, you know, uh, something that that we could do.
1: Um, yeah. So all, all these mechanisms all are very wonderful. And, but I think for me, the big challenge is going to be making it, the shutter actually light tight when it's closed. Yes. And. So I'd say um, it, if there's any doubt about that, then you'd want to be working with a roll film back that has a dark slide so that at least you can limit the damage, <laughs> you know. Right. To, to like, but there's still, if there's any serious light leak in your shutter, that's going to potentially make, you know, burn a big hole in your picture every time. So. That's something to consider, and that's one reason that the guillotine sort of appeals because you can build that into a light trap configuration. These ones where the leaves have to fit perfectly, I'm a little, I wonder a little bit if I'm actually going to, you know, achieve that level of precision.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there was a um, a Japanese camera maker uh, who was essentially assembling cameras by hand. This is what I'm remembering by hand, by uh, from memory and uh he developed a rangefinder and this would have to be probably about 7 or 8 years ago he developed a rangefinder and um it used a um a shutter that was originally designed it's a, a curtain shutter a focal plane curtain shutter uh that's fabric that was originally designed for slrs and one of the things about an SLR is that mirror is down un- until mm-hmm. the camera's ready to take a picture, right? So, right. so it's so like a
1: built in dark slide. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So these curtains were not actually fully a hundred percent opaque. Um, mm-hmm. so if you left the, um, lens cap off, um, then they would, um, it would fog uh, the picture. Yeah. yeah, it would fog the picture. So you would just have to leave the lens cap on, which isn't a big deal for people who use, um, you know, uh, fabric curtain shuttered cameras, uh, like Leica's, because if you, if you, uh, leave the lens cap off and leave it in the sun, that lens can focus that just, light and right, burn, right, just burn a burn hole, a hole in right, in right through it. So yeah. uh so it's one of the things that you you're kind of in the habit of anyway. Uh but it was something although, that, although that, that came up
1: that setting you up for the classic rangefinder error of leaving the lens cap on because you can't Absolutely. see it through the when you're photographing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um,
1: so that's something that I'm going to kind of really make sure. So a rotary shutter can work with a with a built-in light trap as well because you can you can picture that a, a circular or leaf-shaped thing that's following a curved track could also be running in a slot basically creating a you know a full-time light trap um i think that those kinds of designs are more foolproof than the ones where leaves have to meet just so
0: right right exactly yeah um yeah so so anyway um we also uh have we talked about the ilex shutters yet
1: yeah, so I have one, and uh, I like it a lot. They're interesting. They're they're one of the. They made some big shutters that you can screw big lenses into, um, and the Mercury system determined that you can make most medium format uh, cameras work with an ILEX number no. four shutter. I have an ILEX number no. three shutter, and it turns out that the barrel, the throat, is a little too small on those. So, with most lenses, trying to project an image through the shutter, which is pretty thick at the whole mechanism is like three quarters to an, maybe a little more to an inch thick. So the throat has to be pretty large or that you'll have the netting on any of the bigger formats. So the other weird thing about Ilex shutters is that they, they are threaded, not like almost all shutters use a thre, standard threads. So they're fairly interchangeable, you know, the Seiko and the Copal and the, and the Sync, uh, compure shutters. Those all used a standard thread sizes. So you could screw lenses from any maker into any shutter and it would always work. Unfortunately, the Ilex shutter has a weird thread size that they only made. Like it isn't even just an odd size. It's a size that doesn't exist in any other configuration. So unless uh, were you can figure out how Kodak to 3D by Kodak by any chance. <laughs> Well, they were in Rochester. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. There um,
0: we go. There we go. Yeah.
1: So anyway, anyway, however, uh, you can, you know, you can get around that. The one I mounted, um, I just glued it onto a, a bayonet mount and you know, that took care of that. Um, you can also, you could, your method where you maybe would make a, like a, I don't know, uh, a, a plastic collar and then just screw it on there without even the threads being there would probably also work like eh, as long as you can keep light from getting through it doesn't have to fit perfect it doesn't have to thread in perfect although it's nice if it does especially if you're trying to get lenses the right distance apart um, and i do know that uh, mercury has uh, made some custom plastic uh, adapters so they they make it so that the threads on the outside fit the ilex and then the inner threads will fit uh, a lens that you're trying to adapt to that shutter. And so it can be done. Um, but it's that you have to go through probably quite a bit of trial and error to get the threads just right because they're fine threads and it's a big diameter and, you know, probably a little troublesome to get that all worked out. But but it has been done and it, it does work. Um, and yeah, and you could also probably just make a squishy adapter too, for that matter. Um. Uh, you know, strip, wrap some tape or whatever and shove it in there. But if you want something really solid, that, that's a bit of a pain. Now the old Ilex lenses, of course, screw right on. So another possibility would be to find an old Ilex lens. In fact, I have the really terrible oscilloscope lens that came with my shutter. I could probably remove the glass and and use that threaded ring somehow to adapt something else. So... There, there's going to be a way to figure this out. Anyway, the reason those are popular is that they're robust, they're easy to clean and maintain, and they're big. So it's not always easy to find a jumbo, old-fashioned leaf shutter. And they're intended to have a, le- a front and rear element screwed into either side of them. But the thing is big enough uh that you can just screw a modern, um adapt a modern medium format lens, you know, helical and all to one side, and then attach it to the camera, and it will... Uh, it's wide enough that it won't obstruct the light path from that lens way up front. Also, I've been, I'm not going to go on a great length about it, but I've been working intermittently on an idea that I have. So I shoot digital and film side by side as a matter of course. And I've often thought it would be fun to have a camera that did both. And I've talked about this before. And one of the ideas is sort of a twin lens reflex where the, you know, one and one side of it is a digital camera, which helps in setting the film camera. So in other words, you could use uh, exposure information or focus distance information from the digital camera as in order to set the film camera and you would then have one camera that could shoot either film or digital at will. The main catch of course, is that most digital cameras will generally have a smaller format size than, than the film I might want to use. I mean, you could use 35 millimeter and you know, a full frame, but I don't have any full frame digital cameras to work with. So what it would mean is matched lenses that focus together would give two different crops uh, in the result. That doesn't bother me. Um, then I did think of a way around all of that uh recently, which is basically a sliding mechanism. So that you have this digital and film cameras next to each other, and then a lens just slides back and forth between the two, essentially. Or you could think of it the other way around, and maybe the way to think of it is the lens is mounted on a tripod and the cameras slide back and forth um, so that you have the maintain a consistent no parallax error. You've got a consistent point of view for the lens but you're putting either film or digital behind it. And, and again, you could use the digital camera to, you know, figure out your exposure, uh, measure the distance to the object. Um, so it would function as a, a range finder and light meter for the film camera. And I'm going to keep working on this idea because I think, I think there's something there and I think I could actually make something that would be really quite useful. And, and what I'm thinking of, for instance, is, when I shoot with my Roloflex, which I love, in really dim light, I can't see. I can barely see to focus. It's almost hard, hard to frame. Uh, but if I had that same exact point of view on a digital screen, I could, I could actually measure distance for focus, get the exposure figured out for, you know, lo, lo, very low light situations because the EVF will gain up and let me compose even in practically dark uh, conditions. So there's, Actual practical uses for this thing, um, and and it, it could be used in other ways. Uh, you know, with a really big camera, you might think of the digital one as just a, as as like a you know a cold shoe mounted accessory <laughs> that that would provide information and uh, perhaps for things like accurate focusing and so forth. There are many conditions when ground glass is impossible to see, especially with a slow lens. I do want to talk a little bit about, um, film versus digital. So I just was, uh, traveling for two weeks in the Southwest and using a couple film cameras and one digital that was new. So I was kind of paying more attention to it. And, and it was a, it was a good experience because I really enjoyed using the fancy new, well, it's not new, but my fancy new to me digital camera and all its uh, tricks that it can do. But I consistently liked the film results quite a bit better. And
0: it, it's an X Pro 2, am I right?
1: No, it's a X T2, so a little less expensive. X T2,
0: um, okay.
1: T2, yeah. It's a Fuji camera and I love Fuji cameras. I've, I've had another one I've had for four years and this is the, the upgrade to it. Um, it's a camera that I use a lot. I use it in, for my work. It's really, important that I have a decent digital camera just for producing images that I can use to sell my, my work and that kind of thing. But, but I like using them too, just for fun. But the fact is that the, the, the typical photograph that comes out straight out of the digital camera to make me happy, I'm going to have to work with it. Uh, so it's really a different experience. Whereas with, with a film camera, if I have the right film in there, um, I pretty much know I'm going to like the results just as they are. So it's the sort of the opposite of most people think it's the other way around, but that's how it is for me. It, I find that I have to work harder on a digital file to make it please me than I do on a, a scanned piece of film. I, and, and that's, uh, it's exactly the opposite of the way it's supposed to be, but that's, that's the reality that I live with.
0: You know, I keep thinking, um, that there, that i need to find a digital camera that i i can be really happy with um you know for if for nothing else for digitizing uh negatives i mean i think that you know anything that can get me off the slow scanner uh roundabout uh i i'd be very happy with Um, Well, I could. I strongly
1: represent. I strongly recommend any of the Fuji cameras. They're easier. They're easier for film shooters to use in general because they're familiar layout and handling. Right. Um, Right. But but as far as 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 digitizing film, it's it's like anything that you can put a a good macro lens on and focus with precision. That's the key thing. Right. Um, Right. So that and, and and I find that mirrorless cameras are easier to use with. Because you've got this very high-quality live view, they're easier to use with uh, manual focus lenses than, than uh, most of the SLR-type cameras. Right.
0: Right. Well, I'll, I'll continue to look. Uh, I was looking in an X-Pro2, and um, it has the pixel uh, count that I need. Um, that's, I a, a f-
1: that's a really great camera. That's exactly yeah. the same camera as the one I have. But it costs more because it has the hybrid viewfinder, which I right. have in the original. I have the original X-Pro1 version of that. And it's a wonderful camera, even though the old one was kind of slow and clunky. The new one is, is just magic, but it costs more. So I bought the uh, the X-T2. But I can yeah. tell you that exactly, you know, the, the guts are the same. So I can tell you how it works. Um, I like it. Uh, but, you know, it's a digital camera. I really like what it does. Uh, but... I feel I really have to get get work work my way in there and figure out how to make it please me, and that is actually for me m- more difficult and more labor intensive than just shooting an, the the right film through the right lens and just getting it scanned. It's uh it's funny, it really is. But yeah, of course, the no, no, I... magic magical things. Uh, it'll shoot, you know, really high ISO and all that stuff. Yeah,
0: um uh, I'll, I'm, I I'm you know, I'm kind of warming up to it. Um but uh but I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. So do you want to uh move on to the shoutouts?
1: Yeah, so I did have uh oh God, let's see if I can find it. Um here we go. Do you have one to make while I look?
0: We had uh I I I meant to put this in the last show. Uh, but I wasn't, um, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I, I blanked it when we were recording, but Mike Gutterman from, uh, negative positives podcast. He had a, um, a kind of interesting question that he sent to Nick and I. A, and, uh, we posted it on the forums in, uh, on our Flickr, uh, group, but, uh, I think it's worth sending out to uh to everybody who listens and this is this is his deal he goes to a goodwill he finds um a point and shoot um you know a little point and shoot autofocus camera and he and he takes the pictures and he finds the results are neither good enough to be good nor terrible enough to be terrible. And it's kind of a middle blah that he, <laughs> he gets from these things. And, and so he, <laughs> so we have two, two options. How do we make them good enough to be good? And how do we keep, or, or how do we make them bad enough to be interestingly bad? Now, here is the one factor and the reason why he likes the idea of the point and shoots and number one is they're dirt cheap, you know, uh, you can go in and get autofocus cameras. Um, I just bought one from, uh, shipped from Japan for, uh, $42, you know, shipped. And, um, cause I wanted one with a little, the panoramic curtains. And, uh, so I ended up with a Fuji point and shoot. I think it's the DL 500. It's not right here in my hands, but, Um, you know, so you can get these these deals for dirt cheap, but how do we make them oh well okay. But but the one thing that they have, the valuable thing that they have for that price that you pay, that little price, is that they have spot on exposure. Almost always it's all real spot on exposure. So we have to keep the exposure system where we make them terrible or we make them great. Now, you could always, you know, break a coke bottle and tape it on the end of the yeah, lens. Yeah, I think that that you know? that
1: it comes down to the lens. If if the yeah. whole point of it is it has good automatic exposure, then that's out of the picture. Uh, and that's fine. Like I I always think it's a good idea to expose the negative well because then you have more to work with. Uh, right. But but uh, yeah, I think the problem is just that the lenses are mediocre and you either have to replace it with an excellent lens, which is tricky because you've got an odd flange back distance. And a lot of times those lenses are, they're, they're like almost built into the shell of the, you know, the front of the camera. Like they're it's not always evident that you could just take it apart. Um, making the lens worse though, as you say, could be pretty straightforward. It's, you could add, you know, extra layers of funny glass, or a piece of Coke bottle or whatever. That would certainly take you in the other direction, and I guess the other possibility would be if you can, if you can take the lens apart and put it back together wrong. That could be another way. A lot of times, just flipping in an individual piece of the lens around so it points in the wrong direction, uh, or something like that, can really make a difference. Or pulling off one element or something like that. Uh, so I, I guess to the degree you can disassemble it. Um, you have more options,
0: right? So if anybody has had any experience with that, uh, let us know. Um, and, um, Oh, excuse me. You can, uh, well, we'll get to the emails and all that type of stuff a little bit later on, but, um, you know, uh, let us know, Um uh, post in the forums. Uh, there's a forum up for, uh, a, one of my, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the
1: flicker discussion thread would be a great place to communicate um, and and see if you can let uh, Mike Gutterman know of your suggestions. And I actually think it's a great idea because those, I have the same reaction to those cameras. I, of course, want a pocket sized camera that will, you can just push a button and get a photo. But yeah, they, they are kind of blah. And that, that's. If that problem can be solved, that's a great idea. Here's another suggestion. I was just playing with, I didn't buy any of them, but you can get, for like 10 bucks or more or less, you can get uh, elements that were designed to add on to video cameras to make them a little more wide angle or a little more telephoto or whatever. Those add-on lenses, and there are also close-up lenses that can screw right onto a lot of filter thread sizes. So... Those are ways you could introduce a difference and change the camera's, uh, you know, optical characteristics. And some of them were pretty cool. Like we were peering through these really jumbo ones of 77 millimeters it would take up the whole front of the camera, but these are macro, uh, wide angles. So they would, they were a 0.5. So they made the field of view twice as big, um, which is a pretty big change. And they also allowed it to focus really close. And they're just two different lenses that screw together and you just have to mount at the right distance away and it works. Bam. So I almost bought one of these and I should have probably because that's exactly the kind of application, you know, it would be really fun to make one of those cameras a little more wide angle and focus really close. And even if the glass didn't introduce a really different feel, the camera would be a very different camera with, with a wide angle. Uh, Close focus lens on it. It would change how you used it. So, and, and you shot.
0: know, they make those also for modern DSLRs. You see them a lot in the sucker kits.
1: And there's old ones for, for, um, like classic, you know, TLRs and stuff. They're very small. So some of those small, some of those small size, uh, pocket cameras could use a, a little diminutive close up lens on the front of it, you know, so some of those, uh, and they made generic ones. So, so, you know, you don't have to buy the Roli brand. They made generic brands that fit all those old cameras too. And those are, you can find, you know, in thrift stores for nothing.
0: So also we got a uh, a message from Martin Scarland. Do you want to go ahead and read that?
1: Yeah, uh, I can just read it out. It says, hi, Graham and Nick. I have recently finished a homemade 5x4 camera. Well, when I say finished, it is at a point where I can test it. Now, at the moment, its shutter consists of a black piece of card in my hand, which is fine for long exposure, but I am also considering taking portraits with it, which would need a faster shutter. I think I could make do with about an eighth of a second. I do have the start of a sliding guillotine-style shutter, but have not tested or finished it yet. I would love it if you could chat over any thoughts you may have in a podcast at some point. You can see early test shots on my Instagram at ms. C-A-R-L-A-N-D at M Scarland. I have been really enjoying your podcast. Thank you. Kind regards, Martin Scarland. Thank you, Martin, because, you know, it's great to know that other people out there are as obsessed with this nonsense as we are. So thanks for writing. And we're, I'm at the same stage, only I haven't even got a, a partially finished shutter. So I'll be following your lead, I think, Martin. However, um, <laughs> I think that The guillotine is a good idea because, like we discussed earlier, uh, that's a, that's fairly easy to make light tight because you can make a nice overlap slot for the thing to travel in that'll, that'll keep light from getting in around the sides. And, uh, and the part about the rubber band I haven't played with enough, I think the obvious thing is you want it to move quick enough and then it needs to stay put when it gets to the other side. I guess that's the advantage of rubber band. Uh, because it's a one-way spring, it's not going to rebound the way a coil spring might. So, I think that's a good place to start.
0: You you could also um, do a guillotine um, shutter that is gravity driven. And yeah, the advantage... for an eighth,
1: of, eighth of a second, you could probably do that. No problem. Yeah,
0: and the advantage of the gravity drive is that it's incredibly consistent, right? Yeah, it's
1: extremely, um, extremely weak force and therefore easy to calibrate.
0: Yes. Um, the, the only deal is that you would have to always hold the camera upright because if you started to tilt it, you, then could, make
1: you, a, you, you could make a, you could make a shutter that turned in gimbals. Yeah. Okay. So, so you would still have to have it horizontal in one direction, but you could tilt it, you know, in the portrait of landscape mode direction if it, If it basically is like a pendulum that always stayed pointing down, no matter how you turned the camera, but you're right. It would, it would limit the angles you could hold the camera at.
0: So, so yeah. Um, and again, uh, we, we talked a lot of, a lot of what we went through, I think on this episode, uh, addresses this. Um, but you know, there's, there's something to be said for rubber bands. Um, uh, or the other thing is hair scrunchies, Um, and part of the deal with the hair scrunchie is that it has much less pull. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't have as far of a pull, but because it's Mm -hmm. wrapped, you know, it's, it's elastic that's wrapped. It has a much, uh, tighter, um, return. I mean, it, it doesn't have to flex as far, um, if that makes any sense. And it does I've used make them, sense I've used them quite a bit to hold cameras you know shut um, the the you know pinhole cameras that I have um, and, and they're very convenient for that uh, it's just it would be good uh, to maybe play around with them for um, uh, for a shutter so that would be another source of propulsion uh, I think. Now, I just
1: had another, I just had another idea, which yeah. I'm going to just, since it occurred to me, I'm going to say it. It's, uh, if you picture a plunger, uh, self-cocking shutter that works slowly, right? That could be your slow shutter speed. And also it could also simultaneously be the device that blocked the light off after the shutter uh, was fired and then you could have a secondary shutter, say on a rubber band that would be fast and you could set it up so that that thing would fire in the middle of the slower shutter being wide open. So you'd have an either or, so you'd get, that would give you two speeds. Um, if you set it up, right. And, uh, and that fast, and the fa- the fast one could be a guillotine, and the other one could be a rotator. So you could even combine, in other words, two different designs of shutter, one in front of the other.
0: Or, or how about this for for three speeds? You just use the one device. So it has a set opening. Um, it has a gravity drop. That's one speed, oh. and right. then it would have a uh, one rubber band. Um. No. For but and then scrunchy. Or, no. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well. But, uh, but no. Listen. To what I'm. What I'm saying. You could have different rubber band positions. So no, you have. Great. You sure. know. So that that may be able to take care of it. Now. I don't know what kind of speeds we'd be getting with that, but it would be something that you could you could certainly play with.
1: Well, my other idea for higher speeds is that you do a rotary design where it's just gonna. It, the, a circular disc is going to take a, a dot past the, the opening, right? A hole past the opening. And, and you could just simply gear it up. So if you picture I'm picturing one that you would actually turn a little crank or push a plunger and it would crank the circle around. Actually a plunger is a nice idea because they would get 180 degree rotation and then it would stop at the bottom, you know, a plunger on a crank. Um, and that, so that would be a nice design because it would just always, it would always bottom out and stop. And, uh, but you could gear it up so you could make it, uh, you know, you could have like a belt drive or a couple of gears so that the the disc would turn 10 times as fast as your initial rotation, uh, is a way to speed up the shutter. Just a very basic clockwork or belt drive.
0: That definitely could work. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely could work. So, well, if I like plunger uh, and any- crank, <laughs> If anybody In fact, else that can this to... the name
1: of our, our shutter company should be Plunger, plunger and Crank Shutterworks.
0: <laughs> You're the crank. Um <laughs> Okay. Oh wait, no, hold on. You know what that leaves plunger. you? Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Okay, so yeah, I'm the CEO. That's it. Um No, I uh, but if you guys want to get a hold of us, uh you can email us uh, Nick at homemadecamera.com, Graham at homemadecamera.com. Um, we have, um, uh, also, uh, on Instagram, uh, I am Graham Homemade Camera and, uh, on Flickr, I am Freezer of Photons, all one word. And Nick, yours are on Instagram and uh yeah, Instagram and is Avy Nick A V
1: Y N I C K. Uh Avy Nick A V Y N I C K is Instagram, uh, but all those pictures are on Flickr where I post much more stuff and that's just Nick Lyle L Y L E.
0: Okay. And it's and you have to type out the just J U S T N I C K L. No, never mind. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just type out his
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> There yeah, there it's was late there's here. a
1: character who lived down the street from me in Arizona, and he had decided that he would call himself Just Plain Wayne, and he had written <laughs> that on the mailbox, and he'd carved it into the con- wet concrete uh-huh. all around his place, and it was, it was pretty funny.
0: Oh, that's good. It was that's
1: Just good. Plain Wayne, but you wanted everyone to know it, yeah.
0: Do you by any chance listen to uh, the podcast uh, The Illusionist with an A? I have not. I've heard it uh, once or twice. Yeah. yeah, it's all about language. And, yep. um, uh, the last few episodes have been about names. Um, and, uh, like apparently in, um, Iceland, they're very, very, uh, strictly controlled naming, uh, rules for, for children. Like there are oh, 2,000 yeah. approved names. If the mm. name's not spelled properly and, you know, it's not on that list, they will not accept it. Uh, well, so. Well, it's
1: extremely important in order to avoid inbreeding in Iceland. To oh, have I suppose. A very accurate system. Also, because their traditional naming, uh, you, it's hard to it's trace it back. The son of, yeah. Very far.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Because they, they don't have last names, right? Uh, right. so, um, so I would be Graham Derrickson, right? um Mm -hmm. so that's
1: a uh, you should that's a good name
0: yeah that's not a bad name that's not a bad name so uh so anyway one of the things that the the last episode was all about was all call-ins uh of people who had changed their names and a lot of them are uh a lot of it has to do with the trans community and um the idea of picking a new name uh and then Moving away from what they refer to as their dead name. So, um, somewhere along the line, that just plain Wayne, that works for me. Uh, I'm very interested in, uh, in choosing names and choosing your own name and, and deciding whether or not your name works for you. Um, I'm always fascinated by, like my, my grandfather's name was Joseph Donald Jones. Nobody ever called him Joe. And in fact, there's a, a joke. He's going to the hospital for surgery. And they kept saying, Hey, Joe, Hey, blah, 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 blah. You know, he went by Donald. His middle name is his entire life. And, my dad was the same, same way. He, he used
1: his middle name also.
0: Yeah. And, and he didn't, didn't even react to him, you know, and thinking, Oh my God, he has brain damage. Uh, you know, <laughs> So, so the, the, um, but the thing about that is, is I I don't understand. I, and I know it's often family politics, but I don't understand the idea of naming a child with a name and then choosing to call him by his middle name or her by her middle name. Um, so, anyway, that's just. Uh, and I've now probably alienated a good 10% right. of All our the, audience. That's you know. right. Yeah. So. Yep.
1: I. Well, that's okay because, uh, plunger and crank are, people make allowances. <laughs> yes, you
0: know? exactly. Uh, maybe, so, cr- maybe crank is a better name. <laughs>
1: I did, I did have one, uh, I did have one, uh, uh more shout out. Uh, there, there is a person who I asked to post uh, images on our Flickr stream named Randy Davidson and he's just playing with a Polaroid Pathfinder camera. He hasn't modified it. But he's putting paper negatives in it instead of shooting Polaroid. That's oh, a great okay. idea. It's a really yeah, yeah, good yeah. idea. And, and, uh, you know, there's all those, and this is a particularly lovely old camera with a Rodenstock, uh, Isar X 127 millimeter lens. I have just the lens. I don't have the rest of the camera. Uh, it's a beautiful folding bellows camera. I think it's probably rangefinder focus. Um, it's a, it's a very sophisticated camera. And, you know, if you can't get the peel apart film, you might think it's no use, but, He's getting really good results just by simply putting paper negatives in it. Um, so, and
0: so it's a one shot. You go out, you load it, you one shot, you have to change well, it. To I don't know.
1: Or, I don't yeah. know what he did. It would certainly be no big deal to put uh, film backs on it and use, you know, use uh, those uh, double dark slide film backs that four by five cameras have. I mean, that would work fine. So, uh, and I know people have converted those to graph lock and, and similar conversions. Um, but I'm not sure whether he's gone that far. I think he's didn't want to, I don't think he wanted to wreck the camera. I think he wanted to leave it exactly as it is. So he's probably loading it in a dark bag. That wouldn't be that hard either though, especially if you put, put some, you know, some sticky tape on the right spot or whatever. Um, you could just shove the film, the paper in there by feel pretty easily and, uh, and you know, be ready to shoot again. Anyway, the results look really great. Um, it's a whole other uh, approach that I think is worth looking at. I almost bought a really ancient uh Zeiss uh, plate type camera that I saw in a store, you know, in a junk junk store for a low price. And I probably should have. It had a huge ground glass on it. It was ground glass focus. It only had about three shutter speeds and a couple aperture choices. It was a very simple camera, but it took a, bigger than a four by five negative and it had a ground glass focusing back. And it just, it didn't have any place to put film like that was missing, but you know what? How hard would it be to make a little box with some film in it, you know, or modify a dark slide from some other camera or whatever. I should have, I should have jumped on it. Probably.
0: I, I had in the eighties and I cut down four by five film for it, but it was a nine by 12 centimeter, uh, Carl Zeiss, um, from, I don't know, uh, twenties or thirties. And, uh, and I cut it down and, I got some meh results from a lens that probably had some fungus in it or, uh, or haze or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was, you know, I was thrilled with that camera. Um, Yeah. I was thrilled with it as an object. Uh, Not so much. So.
1: Well, and and this, this is interesting too, because there, you know, who knows, maybe they'll get the peel apart film going again, but there are some pretty great, old Polaroids out there that are, uh, they're just begging to be turned into something. And I know there was a whole cottage, cottage industry, people doing that for a while. Um, so, you know, it's a thing already, but it's good to be reminded. I, I tend to be most interested in modifying or recombining old equipment. Um, that just attracts me more. Uh, I should be building from scratch, but I just don't seem to get around to it. And uh, that kind of thing really appeals.
0: Let's thank Robbie.
1: Yeah, Robbie Cribbs wrote and produced the, the music we use throughout our show. We're very grateful for that. And you can look him up on Soundtrap Studios, which is worth doing. Mm.